Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey everyone, David Kern here. Just wanted to let you know about our friends over at Belmont Abbey College who would like to invite all current high school students to attend its summer program, SCOLA. Students will spend a week on their beautiful North Carolina campus just outside of Charlotte, engaging in great book seminars with other young men and women from around the country. You get a chance to go whitewater rafting, hiking, and visit, of course, the city of Charlotte in addition to all the academic things that are going on. More importantly than all that stuff, though, students will have the opportunity to build lasting friendships and have the time for reflection and prayer. Experience leisure in the best sense this summer at Belmont Abbey College's SCOLA program. For more, visit belmontabbeycollege.edu slash SCOLA. That's belmontabbeycollege.edu slash S-C-H-O-L-A. All right, and with that, here is today's episode. You're listening to the Circe Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial, the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean wise sayings a man may live by, if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 18, The Joke's on You. Today's proverb comes from George Orwell. I'll read it twice. The aim of a joke is not to degrade the human being, but to remind him that he is already degraded. Once more. The aim of a joke is not to degrade the human being, but to remind him that he's already degraded. This sounds like a response to someone who was offended by a joke. The proverb is... Defensive. I catch a defensive tone here. And when I imagine Orwell saying this, I imagine him putting up his hands as though in surrender and saying, Hey, look, the aim of a joke is not to degrade the human being. I imagine that someone was offended by something he said. 
a cutting joke, a cruel joke, a dirty joke. Just a joke. Jokes are offensive. All jokes. It's hard to appreciate humor. It's hard to appreciate jokes until you've had to be funny in front of a crowd of people. You learn something rather fascinating, not only about humor, but about people. When you have to be funny in front of them. Please, for a moment, consider trying to be funny in front of a crowd of 200 strangers. Imagine that you've lost a bet, or this is some kind of punishment, or some kind of challenge that's been laid out to you, where you have a month to prepare a series of jokes that you will deliver in front of a crowd of 200 people, and you have to make them laugh. Imagine your life is on the line. What would you say to make people laugh if your life was on the line? You learn something rather amazing about humor. Only when you're put to the task of drawing laughter out of people under duress. I learned something profound about humor around 10 years ago when I had to be funny in front of a large group of people. Kind of. That's kind of the scenario. 10 years ago, I was teaching at a school that took an annual trip, took a large number of students on this trip overnight, several hundred miles away from their hometown, and we ate some good food, or we would eat some good food on the trip, and hear some beautiful music. And the trip was expensive, and it was expected that the students would do a little fundraising in order to cover the cost of this trip. So a fellow teacher of mine, a good friend of mine, and I conspired to do a fundraiser that was a comedy show. We talked it over. We kind of thought of ourselves as two funny guys. We thought, we're two funny guys. We crack each other up. We can probably crack other people up too. So what if we do this fundraiser where we bring people in and we serve them spaghetti and meatballs, which seems like a funny food, And then we get the students who are helping us do the fundraiser, who will benefit from the fundraiser. They will tell jokes to people while they eat spaghetti and meatballs. All the proceeds will go to this trip that we take. This seemed like such a great idea. We were delusionally overconfident in our ability to pull this all off. So we made this announcement, we're going to do this fundraiser, and I think that we might have had five weeks to prepare, five weeks to put it all together. So we would get together in the evening, my friend and I, and we were not trying to write our own jokes. We were not trying to reinvent the wheel. We may have even tried that at first. Let's write some jokes. And we quickly realized that 
we couldn't come up with an hour's worth of material, which the longer we went, the longer the amount of time we had to fill seemed. So we may have tried to write a few jokes on our own. This didn't pass, so we started scouring old books of jokes. We started going through comedy routines by well-known comedians, lesser-known comedians, unknown comedians. We examined humor from the last 10 years and then reached back further and further and further and further. And we could not come up with clean, inoffensive jokes. They seem to not exist. I know we've all heard a clean joke at some point. But to come up with enough clean humor to fill an hour is impossible. We quickly realized this. We started looking at material that we thought, well, this is clean enough, but then it wasn't funny. And the further we went along, the more we thought, maybe we just can't be funny. And what we both quickly discovered is that jokes are all about how stupid people are. That's what humor is about. Jokes are about the terrible decisions that people make. And jokes are not just about the terrible decisions that people make. They're about the terrible decisions that you make. <laughs> jokes are about how stupid you are. All of them. If they're funny, that's what makes them funny. So imagine that you not only have to be funny in front of 200 people, but imagine that these people require that the humor be inoffensive. Imagine how hard your task is. Much easier if you can be a little offensive. If you can highlight human stupidity just a little bit. Of course, highlighting human stupidity means making fun of certain kinds of people. You've got to make fun of rich people. You've got to make fun of poor people. You've got to make fun of young people. You've got to make fun of bachelors. Like, there's no just generic human being that you make fun of. You always make fun of kinds of people. Of course, one of the reasons why stand-up comedy and humor has come under fire in the age of political correctness is because we're very loath to even admit that kinds of people exist these days. And any characterization of a kind of person means limiting them. We don't like this. Thus, humor dies in an easily offended era. Humor's about a juxtaposition of high and low. I think that that's what laughter does, is laughter bridges the high and the low that are presented to people in a joke. Jokes juxtapose what is lofty and what is common. And there are, or there is this fundamental contradiction at the very center of human nature that jokes are always getting at, which is that a human being is body and soul. And bodies are funny and souls are not. <laughs> bodies are low and souls are high. 
Bodies are embarrassing and souls are terrifying. You have a body. You are your body. Your body rarely does exactly what you want it to do. Your body is apt to embarrass you in public in the same way that a child is apt to embarrass you in public. In the same way that you cannot entirely control your child, you cannot entirely control your body. At the same time, you are your body, you are also your soul. You will either be damned to hell forever or live in bliss with God. And the great tool that you've got to reach unto God is this body that won't do what you want it to do. It's terrifying. The high and the low, the body and the soul. And great humor or great joke exposes this. And as Orwell says, reminds you of the degraded state of your body, I'm going to say. The aim of a joke is not to degrade a human being and to make them make a human being think less of themselves, but to reveal to you just how bad the situation is, just how dire the situation is. Getting your soul to heaven with only your body to help you. Carving out a dignified, honorable place in the world with this big, fat, fleshy, meaty instrument that only sometimes does what you want it to do. Now, everybody laughs. <laughs> Little kids laugh. Little kids tell jokes, normally terrible jokes. If a child can get you to laugh, they will tell the joke until you despise it. You got to be careful about what jokes you laugh at that are told by little kids. If you want to hear a joke 25,000 times, just laugh at a child's joke once. Teenagers laugh. Adults laugh. Old people laugh sometimes. I'd like to posit this theory, though. There is no more honest laughter than the laughter of teenagers. And yet, most teenage laughter is inauthentic. Contradiction, paradox, what have you. Most teenage laughter is fake. I have reached this conclusion after carefully observing teenagers for 15 years. Teenagers rarely laugh at things. They laugh. They laugh for each other. But very little teenage laughter is the authentic belly laugh of a man who's just heard the funniest joke in the world. Now, as Aristotle states... Young people have this naturally drunken kind of condition. Nature warms their blood as though with excess of wine, as Aristotle says. And so there's something naturally, inherently just a little drunky about teenagers, which means that they're inclined to laugh. Drunk people laugh at everything. At the same time, Aristotle is entirely right. And this is the inclination of teenagers, that the inclination of teenagers is to behave with the levity of one who has just polished off a bottle of wine in an hour. At the same time, I don't think this entirely explains 
nor is it meant to entirely explain why teenagers laugh so much. Why teenagers laugh when there's nothing to laugh at at all. Now, before I go further, I would restate something I've said many times, which is that I love teenagers. I love spending time with teenagers. And if you're a high school teacher, you better love teenagers or you're an idiot and you're not going to do teenagers any good. I liked teenagers when I started this job many years ago. I really enjoy the company of teenagers now. There is a certain kind of confused simplicity about the way that they look at the world that resonates with me uh, because I still have that same confused simplicity of heart as well. I love spending time with teenagers. And in the same way that there's something iconic about a child's confidence in their parents, iconic of real faith. Um, The Lord speaks of this faith of a little child. There have been a thousand sermons preached on it, some very good, many of them quite sentimental, about the iconic quality of a child's faith. I think there's something iconically human about teenagers as well. And I think it's bound up in laughter. Teenagers rarely laugh at things. They just laugh. They just keep laughing. Why? (laughs) Why? Something goes on around the age of 12 or 13, which a lot of modern evangelicals just refer to as reaching the age of accountability. I buy heavily into this concept, though I don't know that I've ever been able to find it in any ancient Christian work. I read The City of God. I've read many sermons by Leo the Great, Chrysostom. I've read older books on education and I've not yet found any venerable saint who describes this. So perhaps I'm doing a little crowdsourcing here. I'm interested in knowing what the oldest reference in Christian thought to something like the age of accountability. But the age of accountability makes sense to me, not really from a philosophical standpoint, but just in terms of experience, that there is something that happens to people around the age of 12 or 13, whereby they take possession of their spirits, where it seems as though their intellect begins to grasp ownership of their spiritual condition. Now, I think that this, what often accompanies this on a physical level, is that around 12 or 13, the body of a child begins to become capable of having children as well. And that's really when childhood ends, I would say. Now, of course, you must have legal definitions for when childhood ends. I'm not suggesting a sliding scale. I think 18 is perfectly reasonable. And that a person ought to be treated as a child until the age of 18. 
Although we all know that there's nothing magical that happens on the night that somebody turns 18. That often what goes on on an 18th birthday is that the law simply bears witness to something that nature has already begun several years ago. And we assume that it's happened by the time that you turn 18. 18 is late enough that it's happened for most people. Almost every person. But I think this begins around 12 or 13. And at 12 or 13, you take possession of your own spirit. You immediately want to clothe yourself in new clothes. You want to hide from your parents. It's all very embarrassing. It's probably about 12 or 13. When the average Christian begins seriously considering hell. Which I believe is a natural result of taking possession of your own soul. You take possession of your own soul and you immediately worry, what if I mess this up? I could mess this up. I am old enough now that I cannot draft on my parents' good decisions. Now I'm making my own decisions. And you begin to feel the weight of having a soul. And it's not only that people could do things to you that would mess you up for life at 13, but you can make moral decisions at 13 that will have lifelong ramifications. And you start to realize this. 12 or 13... 14, 15, this is middle school, entering into high school. College seems very nearby. And the possibility of failure sets in. Like, I have two daughters, one eight, one ten. They cannot comprehend the concept of failing at life. The idea that you could grow up and simply not develop into an adult who's capable of taking long views of things. And that this could have disastrous ramifications for your employability, but also your romantic prospects. They can't really appreciate this. Not an eight, not at nine, not at ten. By the time you're 14 or 15, though, you can. By 14 or 15, you begin to wonder, am I the kind of person who could be alone for the rest of my life? You start to worry, maybe even at 13. Am I the kind of person who could be alone for the rest of my life? And the awful weight of life slowly begins bearing down on you quite young. It's amazing how early existential fear of failure and hell and disappointing your parents really begins to set in. And yet at the same time that this sets in, you also know how little power you have, at least at the moment. That's the awful thing about being a teenager, is the feeling of this awful weight to produce, to make good on all the gifts your parents have been giving you their entire lives. The awful weight, the awful need to rise to the level of your parents' success in the world, maybe even beyond it. I mean, at 14, how much can you honestly be asked to do? The weight is greater than your ability. Now, this is, I, I believe, this is simply the way God designed the human psyche. I don't think this is problematic. 
I think it's a gauntlet to run. And there are existential, psychic, soul difficulties of being a teenager that cannot be alleviated. And I think it's even dangerous to try to alleviate them, to make these certain existential sufferings go away and just to placate teenagers. No, you'll be fine. It'll turn out great. It might not. You've got to feel that weight for a few years. You've got to practice with the weights on, so to speak, so that when the weights come off, you're powerful. So that you hit 19 with a great big running leap. And all of a sudden, all this power, all this autonomy, all this freedom, all this discretion comes to you. You will only do well with that if you have the fear of God put in you. But in the meanwhile, you're stuck. You're stuck with very few tools to help you to the task. And that's why teenagers laugh at everything. The teenager exists in this perpetual state of high and low. Tremendous burdens. Piddly little tools for taking care of it. You've just taken possession of your own soul. At 13 or 14, you have come into possession of your own soul. No more drafting on mom and dad. But you're a teenager. What an incredible, awful responsibility to give to somebody who's only 14. 14? I can't handle a soul. I can barely remember to brush my teeth. But that's this perpetual state of high and low that teenagers are always in. And that high and low condition just makes you laugh all the time because that's what humor is. Humor is high and low. The teenager is this high-low creature. But, let's be honest, it's not just teenagers. That's Orwell's quote. The aim of a joke is not to degrade the human being, but to remind him that he's already degraded. You're lower than you think. Don't overestimate yourself. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. That body's falling apart as we speak. As we speak, it's falling apart. The great tool God gave you for the refinement of your soul is constantly falling apart. So there's something about a joke that helps a man heed the warning to make the most of your time because the days are evil. The days are evil. The days are tearing your body apart. They're tearing your precious instrument apart. <laughs> Teenagers are, in this way, iconic human beings. We're all teenagers in this sense. The more of a teenager you recognize yourself to be, even in old age, the more capable you are of honestly pleading for God's grace. Laughter is a way of pleading for mercy.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.